1984, Chapter 1 It was a bright, cold day in April, and the clocks were striking thirteen. Winston Smith, his chin nuzzled into his breast in an effort to escape the vile wind, slipped away quickly through the glass doors of Victory Mansions. Though not quickly enough to prevent a swirl of greedy dust from entering along with him, the hallway smelt of bo boiled cabbage and old rug mats. At one end of its colored poster, too large for indoor display, had been tacked to the wall. It depicted sim simply an enormous face, more than a meter wide, the face of a man of about forty-five with a heavy black mustache and ruggedy, handsome features. Winston made for the stairs. It was no use trying the lift. Even at the best of times, it was seldom work, and at the present, the electric current was cut off during daylight hours. It was part of the economy drive in separation for hate week. The flat was seven flights up, and Winston, who was thirty-nine and had a varicose ulcer above his right ankle, went slowly resting several times on the way. On each landing op opposite the lift shaft, the poster with the enormous face gazed from the wall. It had one of those pictures which are so contrived that the eyes follow you when you move. Big Brother is watching you, the caption beneath it read, Inside the flat, a fruity voice was reading out a f list of figures which had something to do with the production of pig iron. The voice came from an ablong metal plaque, like a dulled mirror, which formed part of the surface of the right-hand wall. Winston turned a switch, and the voice sank somewhere through the screen, which the words were still distinguishable. The instrument, the television it was called, should be dimmed, but there was no way of shutting it off completely. He moved over to the window, a smallish, frail figure, the meagerness of his body merely emphasized by the blue overalls which were the uniform of the party. His hair was very fair, his face naturally sanguine, his skin roughened by a coarse soap and blunt razor blades, and the cold of the winter that had ended. Outside, even through the shut window pane, the world looked cold. Down in the streets, little eddies of wind were whirling dust and torn paper into spirals, and though the sun was shining in the sky a harsh blue, there seemed to be no color in anything except the posters that were plastered everywhere. The black mustachioed face gazed down from every commanding order. There was one on the house front immediately opposite. Big Brother is washing you. The caption said, while the dark eyes looked deep into Winston's own. Down at street level, another poster, torn at one corner, flapped fitfully in the wind, alternately covering and uncovering the single word, I-N-G-S-O-C. In the far distance, a helicopter skimmed down between the roofs, hovered for an instant like a blue bottle, and darted away with a curving flight. It was the police patrol, snooping into people's houses. The police did not matter. Only the thought police mattered. Behind Winston's back, the voice from the telescreen was still babbling away about pig iron and overfulfillment of the ninth three-year plan. The telescreen received and transmitted simultaneously. Any sound that Winston made above the level of a low whisper would be picked up by it. Moreover, so long as he remained within the field of vision, which the metal plaque commanded, he could be seen as well as heard. There was, of course, no way of knowing whether you were being watched at any given moment. How often or on what system the thought police plugged in any individual wire was guesswork. It was very, even conceivable that they watched everyone all the time. But at the, any rate, they could plug in your wire whenever they wanted to. You had to live, did live, from habit that became instant, in the assumption that every sound you made was overheard. And except in darkness, every movement was scrutinized. 
Winston kept his back to turned to the telescreen. It was safer, though. As you well knew, even a back can be revealing. A kilometer away, the Ministry of Truth, his place of work, towered vast and white above the grimy landscape, though he thought of a sort of vague distaste. This was London, chief city of Airstripe One, in itself the third most populous of the provinces of Oceania. He tried to squeeze out some childhood memory that should tell him whether London had been quite like this. Were they always visitors of rotting 19th century houses, their sides shored up with balks of timber, their windows patched with cardboard, and the roofs corrugated iron, their crazy gardens walls sagging in every direction, and the bomb sites where the plaster dust swirled in the air and the willow herbs straggled over the heap of rubble, the places where the bombs had cleared a larger path in the end sprung up sordid colonies of wooden dwellings like chicken houses but it was no use he could not remember nothing remained of his childhood except a series of bright light tableau occurring against no background and mostly in unintelligible the ministry of truth miniature in the newspeak was startlingly different from any other object in sight it was an enormous pyramidal structure of glittering white concrete throwing up terrace after terrace 300 meters into the air from where Winston stood, it was just possible to read, picked out on its white face and elegant lettering, the three slogans of the party, war is peace, freedom is slavery, ignorance is strength. The ministry of truth continued. It was said 3,000 rooms above ground level and corresponding ramifications below. Scattered about London, there were just three other buildings of similar appearance and size. So completely did they dwarf surrounding architecture that from the roof of victory mansions you could see all four of them simultaneously there were the homes of four ministries between which the entire apparatus of government was divided the ministry of truth which concerned itself with news entertainment education and the fine arts the ministry of peach peace which concerned itself with the war the ministry of love which maintained law and order and the ministry of plenty which was responsible for economic affairs their name in Newspeak, Miniature, Minipas, Minilove, and Minipleni. The Ministry of Love was the really frightening one. There were no windows in it at all. Winston had never been inside the Ministry of Love, nor within half a kilometer of it. It was a place impossible to enter except on official business, and then only by perpetrating, penetrating through a maze of barbed wire, entanglements, steel doors, a hidden machine gun nest. Even the streets leading up to its outer barriers were owned by gorilla-faced guards in black uniforms armed with jointed truncheons. Winston turned around abruptly. He had set his features onto the expression of quiet optimism, which it was advisable to wear when facing the telescreen. He crossed the room into the tiny kitchen. By leaving the ministry at this time of day, he had sacrificed his lunch in the canteen, and he was aware that there was no food in the kitchen except a hunk of dark-colored bread, which had not got to be saved for tomorrow's breakfast. He took from the shelf a bottle of colorless liquid, the plain white label marked Victory Gin. It was a sticky, oily smell, as of ri Chinese rice spirit. Winston poured out nearly a teacupful, nerved himself for a shock, and gulped it down like a dose of medicine. Instantly, his face turned scarlet, and the water ran over his eyes. The stuff was like nitric acid, and moreover, in swallowing it, one had the sensation of being hit on the back with a head, of the head with a rubber club. The next moment, however, the burning in his belly died down, and the world began to look more cheerful took a cigarette from a crumpled packet marked Victory Cigarettes, and incautiously held it upright, whereupon the tobacco fell out onto the floor. 
With the next, he saw more successful. He went back to the living room and sat down at the small table that stood to the left of the telescreen. From the table drawer, he took out a pen holder, a bottle of ink, and a thick quarto-sized blank book with red back and a marbled cover. For some reason, the telescreen in the living room was in an unusual position. Instead of being placed, as was normal, in the end wall, where it could command the whole room, it was in the longer wall, opposite the window. To one side of it, there was a shallow alcove in which Winston was sitting in which when the flat had been built had probably been intended to hold bookshelves by sitting in the alcove and keeping well back. Winston was able to remain outside the range of the telescreen as far sight as he could. He heard, of course, but so long as he was staying in the present position, he could not be seen. It's partly the unusual geography that had suggested to him the thing he was about to go, now about to do, but had been suggested by the book that he had just taken out of the door. It was peculiar, peculiarly beautiful book. It's smooth, creamy paper, a little yellowed by age. was a kind of that had not been manufactured for at least forty years past. He could guess, however, that the book was much older than that. He'd seen it lighting in the window of a frowsy little junk shop in slummy, in a slummy, slummy quarter of the town, just what quarter he had not now remembered, and had been stricken immediately by an overwhelming desire to possess it. Party members were supposed not to go into ordinary shops, dealing on the free market, it was called. The strict was not the rule was not strictly kept because there were various things such as shoelaces and roller blades razor blades, which it was impossible to get hold of in any other way. He had g- given a quick glance up and down the street and then had slipped inside and bought, bought the book for two dollars fifty at the time he was on not conscious of wanting it for any particular purpose he had carried it around guiltily home in his briefcase. Even with nothing written in it, it was a compromising possession. The thing that it was about to do was open to a diary. This was not illegal. Nothing was illegal since there were no longer any laws, but it was detected. It was reasonably certain that it would be punished by death, where at least 25 years in a forced labor camp. Winston fitted a nib in the pen holder and sucked it off to get the grease off. The pen was an archaic instrument, seldom used even for signatures, and he had procured furtively and with some difficulty simply because of the feeling that the beautiful creamy paper deserved to be written on with a real nib instead of being scratched with an ink pen actually it was not writing by hand apart from very short notes it was usual to dictate everything into the speak right which was of course impossible for his present purpose he dipped the pen into the ink and then faltered for a second a tremor had gone through his bowels to mark the paper was the decisive decision in clumsy letters he wrote April 4th, 1984. He sat back. A sense of complete helplessness had descended upon him. He began with, um, he did not know with any certainty that this was 19, was 1984. It must be round about that date, since he was fairly sure that his age was 39, and he believed that he was born in 1944 or 1945. But it was never possible nowadays to pin any date within a year or two. For whom it suddenly occurred to him to wonder, was he writing the story for the future for the unborn? His mind hovered for a moment around the doubtful date of the page, then fetched up with a bump against the newspeak or double-think. For the first time, the magnitude of what he had undertaken came home to him. How could you communicate with the future? It was as it was of its nature impossible. Even the future was res- would resemble the present, in which case it would not listen to him. Or would be different from it, and had predicted. Predicament would be meaningless. For some time he was sat gazing 
stupidly at the paper. The telescreen had changed over to strident military music. It was curious that he seemed not merely to have lost the power of expressing himself, but even to have forgotten what it was that he had originally intended to say. For weeks past, he had been ready to make, been making ready for this moment, and it never crossed his mind that it, anything would be needed except courage. The actual writing would be easy. All he had to do was transfer the paper with the interminable restless monologue that had been running inside his mind literally for years at this moment however even the monologue had dried up moreover his varicose ulcer had begun itching unbearably he dared not scratch it because if he did so it would become inflamed the seconds were ticking by he was conscious of nothing except the blankness of the page in front of him the itching of the skin above his ankle the blaring of the music and a slight booziness caused by the gin suddenly he began to write in sheer panic only perfectly aware of what he was setting down his small but childish handwriting straggled up and down the paper, shedding first its capital letters, and finally even when it stops. La April 4th, 1984. Last night to the flicks. All war films. One very good one about the ship full of refugees being bombed somewhere in the Mediterranean. Audience was amused by shots of great huge fat men trying to swim away with a helicopter after him. First you saw him wallowing around in the water like a porpoise. Then you saw him through the helicopter's gun sights. Then he was full holes in the sea round him, turned pink, and he sank as suddenly as though the holes had let in the water audience shouting with laughter when he sank then you saw a lifeboat full of children with a helicopter hovering over it there was a middle-aged woman might have been a jewess sitting up in the boat with a little boy about three years old in her arms the little boy was screaming with fright and hiding his head between her breast as if he was trying to burn her right into her and the woman putting his her arms around him and comforting him although she was blue with fright herself all the time covering up as, him up as much as possible as if she thought her arms could keep the bullets off of him then the el then the helicopter planted a 20 kilo bomb in among them terrific flash in the boat went all to the matchwork then there was a wonderful shot of child's arms going up and up and up right up into the air a helicopter with a camera in its nose must have followed it up there was a lot of applause from the party seats but a woman down in the prowl part of the house suddenly started kicking up a fuss and shouting they didn't order of showed it not in front of the kids they didn't it ain't right not in front of the kids it ain't until the police turned her turned her out i don't suppose anything happened to her nobody cares what the pearls say typical pearl reaction they never winston stopped writing partly because he was suffering from cramp he did not know what had made him pour out this stream of rubbish but the curious thing was that while he was doing so a different totally different memory had clarified itself in his mind to the point where he almost felt equal to writing it down it was he now realized because of the uh, this other incident that he had suddenly decided to come home and begin the diary today it happened the morning at the ministry if anything so nebulous could be ha said to happen it was nearly 1100 and in the records department where winston worked they were dragging the chairs out of cubicles and grouping them in the center of the hall opposite the big telescreen in preparation for the two ministries hate ministutes hate winston was just taking his place in one of the middle rows when two people whom he knew by sight had never spoken to came unexpectedly into the room one of them was a girl whom he had passed in the corridors he did not know her name but he knew that she worked in the fiction department presumably because he had seen her with oily hands and a, carrying a spanner she had some mechanical look one of the novel writing machines she was a bold looking girl of about 20 
athletic movements, a narrow scarlet sash, emblem of the junior anti-sex league, which was wound several times about her, the waist of her overalls, just tightly enough to bring out the shapeliness of her hips, once Nad disliked her from the very moment of seeing her. He knew the reason. It was because of the atmosphere of the hockey fields and the cold bath and the community hikes and the general clean-mindedness which she managed to carry about with her. He disliked nearly all women, especially the young and pretty ones. It was always the women, above all the young ones, who were the most bigoted adherents of the, the party. The swallowers of slogans, the amateur spies, and nosers out of unorthodoxy. But this particular girl gave him the impression of being more dangerous than most. Once they had passed in the corridor, she had given him a quick, sidelong glance, which seemed to pierce right into him, and for a moment had filled him with black terror. The idea had even crossed his mind that she might be an agent of the thought police. That it was true was very unlikely. Still, he continued to feel a peculiar uneasiness, which had fear, which had fear mixed up in it as well as hostility whenever she was anywhere near him. The other person was a man named O'Brien, a member of the inner party and holder of some post so important and remote that Winston only had a dim idea of its nature. A momentary hush passed over the group of people round the chairs as the black overalls of the inner party member approaching. O'Brien was a large, burly man with a thick neck and a coarse, humorous, brutal face. In spite of his formidable appearance, he had certain charm of his manner. He was a trick of settling his spectacles on his nose which was curiously disarming, in some indefinable way, curiously civilized. It was a gesture which, if anyone had thought in such terms, might have called an 18th-century nobleman offering his snuff-box. Once I had never seen O'Brien, perhaps a dozen times in almost as many years, felt deeply drawn to him, and not solely because he was intrigued by the contrast between O'Brien's urbane manner and the prize fighter's physique. Much more, it had been because of his of a secretly held belief, or perhaps not even a belief, merely hoped that O'Brien's political orthodoxy was not perfect. Something in his face suggested it irresistibly, and again, perhaps it was not even orthodoxy that was written in his face, but simply intelligence. But at any rate, he had the appearance of being a person that he, you could talk to if somehow you could cheat the telescreen and get him alone. Winston had never made the smallest effort to, to verify this guess. Indeed, there was no way of doing it. At this moment, O'Brien glanced at his wristwatch, saw that it was nearly 1100, and evidently decided to stay in the records department until the two-minute minutes hit was over. He took a chair in the same row as Winston, a couple of places away. A small, sandy-haired woman, who was in the next cubicle to Winston, had was between them. The girl with the dark hair was sitting immediately behind. The next moment, a hideous grinding screech as of some monstrous machines running without oil, bursting from the big telescreen at the end of the room. It was a noise that one's teeth on edge and bristled the hair on the back of one's neck. The heat had started. As usual, the face of Emmanuel Goldstein, the enemy of the people, had flashed into the screen. There were hisses here and there among the audience. The little sandy-haired woman gave a squeak of mingled fear and disgust. Goldstein was the renegade backslider, who once long ago... How long ago, nobody quite remembered, had been one of the leading figures of the party, almost on a level with Brig Brother himself, and that was engaged in contra-revolutionary contra activities that had condemned to death, and had mysteriously escaped and disappeared. The program of the two minutes hate varied from day to day, but there was none in which Goldstein was the principal figure. He was the pr primal traitor, the earliest defiler of the party's purity, all subsequent crimes against the party, all treacheries, acts of sabotage, heresies. The deviation sprang directly out of his teaching somewhere or other. He was still alive and hatching his conspiracies. 
perhaps somewhere beyond the sea under the protection of the foreign paymasters, perhaps even so it was occasionally rumored in some hiding place in the Oceanus himself. Winston's diagram was constricted. He had never seen the face of Goldstein without a painful mixture of emotions. It was a lean Jewish face, the great fuzzy earl of white hair and a small goatee beard, a clever face, and yet somehow inherently despicable, the kind of Sinel Sinel silliness in his long, thin nose, near the end of which a pair of spectacles was perched. It resembled the face of a sheep, and the voice, too, had a sheep-like quality. The Goldstein had delivered his usual venomous attack upon the doctrines of the party, an attack so exaggerated and perverse that a child should have been able to see through it, yet just plausible enough to fill one with alarm, feeling that other people, less level-headed than oneself, might be taken to it. He was abusing Big Brother, he was denouncing the dictatorship of the party, he was demanding the immediate conclusion of peace with Eurasia. He was advocating freedom of speech, freedom of press, freedom of assembly, freedom of thought. He was crying hysterically that the revolution had been betrayed. And all this in rabid, polysyllabic speech, which had a sort of parody of the habitual style of the orators of the party, and even contained newspeak words, more newspeak indeed than any party member would usually use in real life. And all the while, least one should be in doubt of the reality, which Goldstein's Specious claptrap covered behind his head on the telescreen. There marched the endless columns of the Eurasian army, row and row after solid-looking men with expressionless, exotic faces who swam up to the surface of the screen and vanished to be replaced by others exactly similar. The dull rhythmeth tramp of the soldiers' boots formed the ground background to the Goldstein's bleeding voice. Before the hate had proceeded, the thirty seconds uncontrollably exclamations of rage were breaking out from half the people in the room, the self-satisfied sheep-like face on the screen and the terrifying powder of the Eurasian army behind it were too much uh, to be borne. Besides, the sight of even the Goldstein produced fear and anger automatically. He was an object of hatred, more constant than either Eurasia or East Asia. Since one Oceania was in war with one of these powers, it was generally at peace with the other. But what was strange was that although Goldstein was hated and despised by everyone, although every day and a thousand times a day, on platforms, on the telescreen, in newspapers and books, had the theories were refuted, smashed, ridiculed, held up to the general gaze for the pitiful rubbish they were. In spite of all this, his influence never seemed to grow less. Always there was fresh dupes waiting to be seduced by him. A day never passed when spies and saboteurs acting under his directions were not unmasked by the thought police. He was commander of the vast shadow, shadowy army, an underground network of conspirators dedicated to the overthrow of the state, the Brotherhood, its name was supposed to be. There were whispered stories of a terrible book, a compendium of all heresies, of which Goldstein was the author, and which circulated clandestinely here and there. It was a book without a title. People referred to it as, if at all, simply as the book, but no one knew of such things, though vague rumors. Neither the Brotherhood nor the book was the subject of any, that any other party member would mention if its name was avoided. In a second minute, the hate rose to frenzy. People were leaping up and down in places and shouting at the top of their voices in effort to drown the maddening, bleeding voice that came from the screen. The little sandy-haired woman had turned bright pink, and her mouth was opening and shutting like the landed fish. Even O'Brien's heavy face was flushed. He was sitting very straight in his chair, his powerful chest swelling and quavering as though he had standing up at the assault of the wave. The darker girl behind Winston had begun crying out, Swine, swine, swine. And suddenly she picked up a heavy newspeak dictionary and flung it at the screen. It struck Goldstein's nose and bounced off. 
The voice continued inexorably. In a lucid moment, Winston found that he was shouting in the others and kicking his heel violently against the front of his chair. The horrible thing about the two men's state was not that he was obliged to ask to part, but it was impossible to avoid joining in. Within thirty seconds, any pretense was also unnecessary. Hideous ecstasy of fear and vindictiveness, a desire to kill, to torture, to smash faces with a sledgehammer, seemed to flow through the whole group of people like an electric current, turning on one against Will and his grimacing, screaming lunatic. And yet the rage that one felt was an abstract, undirected emotion which could not be switched from one object to another, like the flame of a blow lamp. Thus, it end Thus, at one moment, Winston's hatred had turned against Goldstein at all, but on the contrary, against Big Brother, the party, and the Thought Police. At such moments, his heart went out. Lonely, derided, heretic on the screen, sole guardians of truth and sanity in a world of lies. But the very next inst instant, he was one of the people about him, and all that was said of Goldstein seemed to, be, to him to be true. At those moments, his secret loathing of Big Brother changed into adoration, and Big Brother seemed to tower him up, an invincible, fearless protector, standing like a rock against the hordes of Asia and Goldstein. Despite his insul isolation, his helplessness, and the doubt that hung over his very existence, seemed like sinister enchanter, capable by the mere power of his voice of wrecking the structure of civilization. It was possible at any moment to switch one's hatred this way, or of involuntary act. Suddenly, by the effort with one's wrenches, the pillow, in a nightmare, Winston succeeded in transferring his hatred from the face of the screen to the dark-haired girl behind him. Vivid, beautiful hallucinations flashed through his mind. He flogged her to death with a rubber truncheon. He would tie her naked to a stake and shoot her full of arrows like St. Sebastian. He would ravish her and cut her throat at the moment of climax. Better than before, moreover, he heard why it was that he hated her. He hated her because she was young and pretty and sexless, because he wanted to go to bed with her and would never do so. Because around her sweet, supple waist, which seemed to ask you to encircle it with your arm, there was one odious scarlet sash, an aggressive symbol of chastity. They rose to its climax. The voice of Goldstein had become an actual sheep's plea. For an instance, the face changed into that of a sheep. Then the f sheep's face melted into the figure of the Eurasian shoulder. soldier, which seemed to be advancing, huge and terrible, his submachine gun roaring and seeming to spring out of the surface of the screen people in the front row actually flinched backwards in their seat, but in the moment drawing a deep sigh of relief from everyone, the hostile figure melting the faces of Big Brother, black-haired, black-mustachioed, full of power and mysterious calm, and so fast that it filled up the screen, nobody heard the bit words Big Brother was saying. It was merely a few words of encouragement, the sort of words that were uttered in the din of battle, not distinguishable individually, but restoring confidence by the fact of being spoken. Then the face of Big Brother faded away again, and instead the three slogans of the party stood out in bold capitals. War is peace, freedom is slavery, ignorance is strength. But the face of Big Brother seemed to persist for several seconds on the screen, as though the impact that it had made on everyone's eyeballs was too vivid to wear off immediately. The sandy-haired woman had flung herself forward, the back of the chair in front of her. With a tremulous murmur that sounded like my savior, she extended her arms toward the screen. Then she worried her face in her hands. It was apparent that she was uttering a prayer at this moment. The entire group of people broke into a deep rhythmical chant of bb 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 over and over again very slowly with a long pause between the first b and the second heavy murmurous sound somehow cur curiously savage in the background of which one seemed to hear the stamp of naked feet and the throbbing of tom-toms for fact as for perhaps as much as thirty seconds they kept it up it was a frame that was often heard in moments of overwhelming emotion 
partly because it was some sort of hymn of the wisdom and majesty of Big Brother, but more, it was an act of self, hypnosis, and a deliberate drowning of consciousness by means of rhythmic noise. Winston's entrails seemed to grow cold. In the two minutes' hate, he could not help sharing in the general delirium, but the subhuman chanting of B, 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 B always filled him with horror. Of course, he chanted with the rest. It was impossible to do otherwise, to dissemble your feelings, to control your face, to do what everyone else was doing with an instinctive reaction, but there was space of a couple of seconds during which the expression in his eyes might conceivably have betrayed him, and it was exactly at that moment that the significant thing happened, if indeed it did happen. Momentarily, he caught O'Brien's eyes. O'Brien had stood up. He had taken off his spectacles and was in the act of resettling them on his nose. With this characteristic gesture, but there was a long fraction of a sex second when their eyes met. And for as long as it took to happen, Winston knew, yes, he knew, that O'Brien was thinking the same thing as himself. An unmistakable message has passed. It was as though their two minds had opened and their thoughts were flowing from one into the other through their eyes. I'm with you, O'Brien seemed to be saying to him. I know precisely what you are feeling. I know all about your content, your hatred, your disgust, but don't worry, I'm on your side. And then the flash of intelligence was gone and O'Brien's face was as inscrutable as everyone else's. There was awe. He was uncertain whether it had happened. Such incidents never had any sequel. All that they did to keep him alive in him the belief or hope that others beside him self were the enemies of the party perhaps the rumors of the vast underground conspiracies were true after all perhaps the brotherhood really existed it was impossible in spite of the endless arrests and confessions and executions to be sure that the brotherhood was not simply a myth some days he believed some days not there was no evidence only fleeting glimpses that might mean anything or nothing snatches of overheard conversation faint scribblings or la on lavatory walls once, even when, two strangers met a small movement of their hands, which had looked as though it might be a signal of recognition. It was all guesswork. Very likely he had imagined anything. He had gone back to his cubicle without looking at O'Brien again. The idea of falling up their momentary contact hardly crossed his mind. It would have been unconceivably dangerous if he had known how to sit about doing it. For a second, two seconds, they had exchanged an equal vocal glance, and that was the end of their story. But even... But even was a memorable event in the locked loneliness in which one had to live. Winston roused himself and sat up straighter. He let out a belch. The gin was rising from his stomach. His eyes refocused on the page. He discovered that while he sat helplessly musing, he had been writing as though an automatic action, and it was no longer the same cramped, awkward white handwriting as before. His pen had slid voluptuously over the paper writing in large neat caps down with big brother 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 over and over again filling half a page it could not help feeling a twinge of panic it was absurd since the writing of those particular words was not more dangerous than the initial act of opening the diary but for a moment he was tempted to tear out the spoiled pages and abandon the enterprise altogether but he did not do so however because he knew that it was all useless whether he wrote down big with big brother or whether he refrained from writing it made no difference whether he made it with the diary or whether he did not go on without with it made no difference the thought police would get him just the same he had committed would still have committed even if he had, he had never set pen to paper the essential crime that contained all others in itself thought crime and they called it thought crime was not a thing that could be concealed forever you might dodge successfully for a while even for years but sooner or later they were bound to find you it was always at night. The arrest invariably happened at night. The sun jerk out of your sleep. The rough hand shaking night, shaking your shoulder. The lights glaring in your eyes. The ring of hard faces round the bed. In the vast majority of cases, there was no trial. 
No report of the arrest. Simply people disappeared. Always during the night, your name was removed from the registers. Every record of everything you had ever done was wiped out. Your one-time existence was denied and then forgotten. You were abolished, annihilated, vaporized, was the usual word. For a moment, he was seized from by a kind of hysteria. He began writing in a hurried, untidy scrawl. They'll shoot me, I don't care. They'll shoot me in the back of the neck, I don't care. Down with Big Brother. They'll always shoot you in the back of the neck, I don't care. Down with Big Brother. He sat in his chair, slightly ashamed of himself, and laid down his pen. The moment he started, vi- he started violently, there was a knock at his door. Already he sat as still as a mouse in the futile hope that whoever it was might go away without a single attempt. But no, the knocking was repeated. The worst thing of all would be to delay. His heart was something like a drum, but his face, from long habit, was probably expressionless. He got up and moved heavily towards the door.